0: It tells us something. Church has become less of a priority. So that is objectively true. That is is what's happened. But here's what I know. You're here at church today. So I'm just going to assume that you see church as pretty essential already. But do you know why it's essential? You see, I've asked people that in our church within the last six months, because I've done a lot of research on this. And People struggle to give me answers right away. I mean, they had to really think about it. Ah, I guess I just do it, you know. (laughs) Eventually, they come up with good answers, but it takes a while. So I want to help you to be able to articulate to other people who are not sitting here this morning, who aren't as involved, to go, hey, this is really essential, and this is why. Or people who are really doubting it and going, you know what? I could just do church on my own in my deer stand just as well, to go, no, hey, wait. This is why it's so important to gather with a local church. So we want to get, kind of give you some tools in your tool belt, so, so to speak. Um, so there's your magnet, but he, here's the point of the magnet. Here's the point of the series, okay? Our hearts, as the song says, are so prone to wander, right? We feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love, and we're actually, we could say also, we're prone to leave the church family we love. So we're saying, here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Lord, make our hearts steadfast. Make our hearts committed, not just to you, Jesus, but to what Jesus calls his bride, the church. So, that leads us to today. Why is church so essential? Because God loves it. And I want to start at a strange place in scripture, okay? Ephesians 5 25. Now it's so strange because this is the scripture that I use in premarital counseling, and I use often when I give the message at weddings. So why are we starting here? Let's read it and I'll tell you. So it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Incredible verse for husbands, okay? Don't miss that, husband. That can kind of be the side sermon message thing to think about and live out this week. But I want to focus on the second half. How are we, husbands, supposed to love our wives? Just like Jesus loves the church. And he loved him so much, he gave himself up for her. So here, and in Revelation 19 and various other places in Scripture, the church is called Jesus' Bride. Now, the church here, we're talking about what most people refer to as the Big C Church. The Big C Church just means God's people, followers of Jesus from all over the world comprise the Big C Church. Jesus loves, collectively, his followers of Jesus. Now, I know that this is a strange analogy, especially for guys, right? Especially if you're a husband, to think, I'm someone's bride. Okay, that, guys, are you with me? Isn't that kind of weird? Just the analogy to think about. It's been weird for me to think about. So I want to help us make some sense of this, especially for the guys. So Pastor Rick Warren said this. When you say you like Jesus, but not the church, it's like telling me you like me, but you hate my wife. Let me read that again. When you say you like Jesus, but not the church, it's like telling me you like me, but you hate my wife. Here's the deal. If you hate my wife, you got issues with me, right guys? And if, and if you're married and that's not true, do some heart surgery, all right? But, uh, but ideally, that's where it's at, right? If you got, if you got issues with me, you got, or with my wife, you got issues with me now. God loves his people. The church, just like an incredible husband, loves his wife. So husbands, just guys, let me, let me help you with this. God cares for and protects his church like you strive to care for and protect your wife. Except way, way better. Think of it like this, guys. It's more like, this analogy is more like Jesus being our protective big brother. Okay. Now, Jesus is obviously way more than that. I'm describing this analogy of us being the bride of Christ. It's like him being our protective big brother. I think that's really helpful for guys. But ladies, wives, God loves and cherishes you like your husband does on his best day, except way, way better. See, this, this analogy, I know, hits more home to wives, but guys... Let this ring in your your mind when you know when you say like you like Jesus but not the church, it's like telling me you like me, but you hate my wife. See, God loves the church so much because He is in a covenantal relationship eternally with the church. Loving Jesus and distancing yourself. From the church is like being friends with me, but never talking about Heather, my wife, with me. That would be a weird relationship, and not a friendship I would have in my life. It just wouldn't make sense. The same thing is true about church. Why is church essential? Because God loves it, because he's in committed, eternal relationship with the church, his bride. But God doesn't just love the big C church. God loves what I'm going to call the little C church. God loves a local gathered church. Stonebridge Church. Grace Community Church. First Eve Free Church. God loves local church gatherings. So let me show you this in scripture. Matthew 16 Starting in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, it's on the screen if you'd like. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now much could be said about this scripture here, but I want to hone in on verse 18 on this rock I will build my church, church. This word literally means assembly, a gathering of people. God's assembled people, Jesus is saying, will storm the gates of hell and win. Jesus felt it necessary in clarifying who he is, because remember, this is why I showed you the context. They're asking, Jesus is asking his disciples, who are people saying I am? And then he, he clarifies and goes, yes, this is who I am. I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But also this. He mentions the gathered church. Notice that Jesus didn't mention here spiritual disciplines. Prayer, reading the Bible, although those are important. He didn't mention evangelism. In the same breath as who Jesus is, although that's important to share the good news of Jesus with other people. And he didn't mention serving other people, although that's incredibly important as well. He mentions the gathered church, the spiritual family of Jesus getting together. Now obviously all those things I just said and more, spiritual disciplines, evangelism, serving happens within that. And I think that's why Jesus did that. But he doesn't just mention the local church, the gathered church here. He establishes it as a key to his continued work. You see, Jesus guaranteed the victory for the church against hell and all evil. And he did this by living a perfect life, giving himself sacrificially on a cross, and then triumphantly rising from the dead, which we celebrated last week on Easter. And our job now is to be the church. Do you know what that doesn't mean? It doesn't mean I will be the church by myself, or you are to be the church by yourself. This means that Our job is to be the church together. And when we do that, look at this scripture. We will push back hell on this earth. Let me, let me paint this picture, okay? I, I guarantee you didn't wake up this morning and have this thought, but you should on Sunday morning. You did not come here today and think, you know what? I'm going to get together today at church, and because of us getting together today, the gates of hell are going to be pushed down and pushed back today. I guarantee you didn't have that thought, but you should. Because here's the deal. Jesus is the head of the church Jesus is out ahead on his white horse, guaranteeing the victory. He already sealed it with his death and resurrection so that when we get together, his church, we are literally pushing back hell. And it didn't feel like it. We sang some songs. We, we sat there in the, the normal seat I usually sit in and we heard the word, maybe said amen a couple times, talked to some people and I left. But I'm telling you, Jesus is telling us here, But this is what happens when the church gathers. Do you believe that? Next time you go to Bible study, think, I'm not going to study the Bible with some other people this week. I'm going to push back the gates of hell. I'm not coming to church to sing some songs. I'm not coming to church to hear Matt blab on and on about this or that. I'm here to push back the gates of hell with Jesus leading the way. Do you believe that? That is the point of the church. And we missed it. And I miss it in my heart so often. I just come in and do the same thing. And we all do this. But don't do it anymore because it's not what Jesus has called us to. We need to have a shift in our hearts. We need to have a shift in our heads. See, you are not the church. In America... I've, I've heard this said, I heard a song on the radio this week, and it was well-intentioned, okay? A well-intentioned song that said, you are the church. And I'm like, no, you're not. I'm not the church. You are not the church. We are the church. I certainly have Jesus inside of me and have a responsibility, but I am not the church. So therefore, sitting at home with my Bible open is not church. Important, intensely important. But it's not the same thing. COVID taught us otherwise. And it's not okay. In this book, you, you maybe saw it on your way in, and, and this series was loosely based off of this book, but this goes into much more detail. Rediscover Church says sometimes people like to say that a church is a people, not a place. It's slightly more accurate to say that a church is a people assembled in a place. See, I'm also not saying that church is this brick and mortar building. It absolutely is not. We could be meeting out on a barge in the river, on the Des Moines River, although it's too shallow, but just go with me, okay? Um, That would be church because it's the gathering of God's people. But it isn't just me. I'm not the church. You're not the church. We are the church. There's no way around it. You see, God loves the local gathered church. And it's his tool for pushing back the darkness in this world until his return. Let's take a a couple pages over in Matthew to Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. This is on the screen as well. Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered, it says, together in my name, I am there among them. Powerful, powerful verse. I want to help us understand this verse in context, though, because it's often misused. This this verse is actually the last verse from a passage that we don't like to read, even as Christians, okay? We love to to take this verse and put it over here and go, yeah, let's get together, the two or three of us, but we don't like what it said right before it uh, very often, but it's actually talking about, if you look at it, the restorative process for dealing with sin within the church. And so I want to share this quote from theologian Matt Smethurst. He says, moreover, In light of the preceding verses, he's talking about Matthew 18, 20, Jesus is not discussing two or three believers swapping prayer requests at Starbucks. He's envisioning a whole congregation assembled to, to put someone out of their fellowship as the culminating act of church discipline. And he promises those believers, the ones gathered, to exercise the keys of the kingdom that he will be with them. This is remarkable However unimpressive a gospel-believing church may appear to the world, Jesus authorizes its assembled members to speak and act in his name, with his insignia, to tend the boundaries of his church and declare on heaven's behalf who belongs to him. Whoa. See, When it says where two or three are gathered in his name, I am there among them. It's not simply that Jesus is present when the church gathers. That is true. It's that Jesus entrusts his people with the responsibility of acting, loving, teaching, and even rebuking on his behalf when the church gathers. He's handing them the keys. But here's the point. God shows up in a special way when the church gathers. God's stamp of approval and special blessing is on the gathered local church. Now, I want to pause for a second, and I want to address a popular opinion I've heard about the church. It goes something like this, church leaders are hypocrites. I don't want to go. They're all hypocrites. And to that, I would say, you're right, and you're looking at one. hypocrisy is a huge problem for church leaders church leaders are called to hire the qualifications in first timothy and titus and james it says will be judged more strictly and you better believe a day does not go by that i don't feel the weight of that as do the other leaders within our church and we don't take that lightly but here's what i want us to see here's what i want us to understand You looked at a hypocrite in the mirror this morning. And I'm not talking about your kid or your spouse walking by as in the bathroom, okay? Though that's true too. Uh, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me. See, to some degree or another, we say one thing and then do the opposite. Our hope, though, according to this verse, is that when two or three hypocrites gather in Jesus' name, he's there among them too. Yes, that is the grace of God. See, Jesus is here in a special way. And it's often the very gathering of God's church, of God's people, that helps us live less hypocritically. So... I want to say this and I want to and I mean this. I mean especially as a church leader, I am sorry if you've been hurt by the gathering of God's people, the church, especially if it was here and especially if it was me. But God can and does deal with and even use that. Don't let the past dictate your future. Don't let the past hurtful experiences of God's church keep you from experiencing God through others in the church today. You're only robbing yourself of joy. You're only robbing yourself of the opportunity to enjoy the gift of the church that God has given to us. We're rejecting his design when we start to stiff arm the church, even if we've been hurt. But I do want to acknowledge that real hurt, I'm positive in this room, has taken place. This is going to be, maybe, maybe you'll get it right away, I don't know, but maybe this will be crazy sounding to some of you. But I've been hurt by the church. I think we all have to some degree because there's a bunch of sinners around, right? But thankfully, sin is not our identity. Our identity as followers of Jesus is Jesus, and he's perfect. And so there is hope for Christian community. There is hope for you being part of a local gathered church and having real, loving, encouraging, challenging sometimes relationships that really help you along. You can have that no matter what's happened to you again. So here's what I want to do. I want to just pause for a second. I'm not ending the sermon early yeah, I know, I know. But I, I want to pray for those of you who have been hurt by the church in any, in any way, anywhere. So let's pray. Father, I pray for those here who have been hurt in any way by the gathering of your people, whether it was long ago or very recently, here or somewhere else. I pray, Father, that you would help them to heal, Lord, and that they would be able to lean in again, to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Still aren't convinced that God loves the gathering of the local church? I'll be honest with you. I was frustrated at first, and I was frustrated because outside of the scriptures I already just shared with you, there's really no go-to passages that explicitly stress the importance of the local church. And then I'm like, but I know it's important. What Where do I go? But then it clicked, okay? And I want this to click for you now too because it was just like the waters just just were let open. It's like the floodgates just came to me. and It's like, here's what I found out. I was looking at scripture, okay? Do you know how many letters are written to local churches in the New Testament? 21. It turns out, the importance of the local church, I couldn't find a go-to passage because it's woven in the fabric of them. The New Testament is letters to local churches. So it's 14 whole books and then 7 letters in Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3. But if 21 letters, if there's that many letters, what does that say about the importance of the local church? Here's what it says. It's way more important than you ever thought. God loves the local church so much he dedicated a ton of the New Testament to helping the local church. I want you to listen to lines. I'm going to share a line from each and every one of those letters because I want Scripture to speak for itself. And I, while I read this, I want you to just soak it up. That God's heart is for the local church. I know it's Paul writing to a local church. I know it's John. I know it's others writing to churches and to leaders. But this is Scripture, meaning these are God's words to local churches. This is God's heart for the local church listen to this Romans 1 verse 7 to all who are in Rome loved by God called as saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ now I know you might be thinking oh yeah but Rome was a big city it was a huge city at the time So this isn't a local church. No, it was. This was early Christianity. Most cities didn't even have any Christian churches in them yet, okay? So there was just one local church in Rome at the time. That's who he's writing to. And he calls them saints, loved by God. And this is God pouring out his love, grace to you, peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear God's love for them. Next, 1 Corinthians 1, keep in mind the church in Corinth, we learn from the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, was a messed up church, terrible in a lot of ways. He says to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus our Lord, both Their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is how God addresses a church who is really struggling, what's that say about God's heart for the local church? Grace and peace to you. Saints, he calls them. Sanctified. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the same church, to the church of God at Corinth. He says the same thing, grace to you and peace, and then says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. See, he loves this church, this local church, so much. He goes, hey, you guys, You need some encouragement. You need some comfort. Come and find it in me, God is saying to them. And then let that comfort extend to one another because y'all really need it. He loves them so well, so tenderly. Galatians 1. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our Father. He reminds them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you. In my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you hear that? He's praying with joy. This is God's heart for the local church. I'm praying with joy for you. I give thanks for you. Man, he loves them so much. Colossians 1. To the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. He's encouraging them. You guys are faithful. You have genuine love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do You hear the specific encouragement he gives them. He doesn't just say you guys are doing a great job as a church. No, he says, I know your work and it's produced by faith. Your labor is motivated by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, to the church of the Thessalonians. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters. And rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love. Each, other, each one of you has for one another is increasing. He goes, I see it. I see you guys really love each other in an incredible way, in a supernatural way. Keep that up. 1 Timothy 1, now he is writing to a pastor, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. He's a pastor of the church the local church in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. See here, God cares so much for the church that he addresses the pastor and he says to the pastor, hey, hey, you're doing a fantastic job and I want to encourage you and instruct you and challenge you. Hey, here are some things to look out for as you pastor. 2 Timothy 1, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now he's saying to this church leader, hey, remember the gifts that you have, don't let them wane, keep using the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of my church there in Ephesus, keep it up, don't be marked by fear, be marked by power, love, and sound judgment, Titus 1, he's writing to Titus, another pastor, my true son in our common faith, the reason I left you in Crete, the pastor at the local church in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. Elder is synonymous in the Bible for pastor. He was not only to pastor this church in Crete but also to plant churches and appoint pastors at those churches as well. That's how much God loves the local church and seeing more local churches planted. Philemon says, to Philemon, our dear friend and brother, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Here's what I love about this. He is addressing someone who is having their church meet in their home. Maybe it was because of persecution. Maybe it's because they just didn't have a space, couldn't afford it. We don't know. But the church was gathering in their home. And God recognizes it and writes a letter to them. 2 John 1. This was new for me. It says, To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. I almost blew past this and didn't include it, but then I did some research. Here's who John is writing to. He's not writing to a lady and her kids. He is writing to the bride of Christ, he is writing to a local church and her children, the people who are part of that local church. And then you have Revelation 2 and 3, and it says throughout it, okay, these seven letters to seven churches, to the angel and the church in Ephesus. And then in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I want to hone in on the one to Ephesus. So Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7, listen to God's heart for a local church here. He says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. you see how much God loves this local church? He encourages them very specifically. What a great way to love a church, right? Verses two and three. I know your works, your labor, your endurance. You cannot tolerate people. You've tested them. You've done this hard work of testing people. You've called some people out even as God has led you. And I know you've persevered. And I know it's been hard for you. And you've done it for the sake of not yourself, but for my name. And you've not grown weary. He encourages them really specifically what love he has for this church. And, but then he challenges them. He doesn't just encourage them. Verse 4, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, God is challenging this church. Why? Because he hates them? Quite the opposite. Because he loves them. He loved them too much to not say something. You See, if God didn't love them, he wouldn't have challenged them, challenged them. He would have just been quiet. But then he doesn't just challenge them. He gives them hope and he gives them a way forward. Verse 5. Repent, he says. And do the works you did at first. See, here's your hope. You don't have to stay there. And I'm not sitting here condemning you. No, I'm saying, I'm challenging you. And saying, hey, there is a way forward. And here's the way. Take it. And y'all will be better off for it. What incredibly attentive and intentional love God has for this local church. And that's the attentive, intentional nature of God's love for every local church. The ultimate way that God showed how much he loves the church is where we began today, and it's the cross. You see Ephesians 5.25, when it says that for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he was saying, hey, I'm the ultimate example. Church is essential because God loves it, And God loves the church. Get this, God loves Stonebridge Church so much that he was willing to give up his very life for it. Church is essential because God loves it to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray.